2022 was another banner year for the venture capital scene in Israel with $15.5 billion in investments, the second highest on record after 2021. What will 2023 look like for the startup nation? We'll talk about it with Lee Moser, managing partner and founder of And Ventures, and former chief of staff to Michael Oren when he was Israel's ambassador to the United States. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insiders Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, we have a great guest today. We're going to get into the VC scene in Israel once again. We've dabbled in that last year. Uh, We have a good preview update on what's happening in 2023. But first... A few things on our minds to discuss. Yes, yes. I am really excited. Uh, On Sunday, this past Sunday, I was able to help co-host a basketball scrimmage with the NBA Players Association and uh, a school called Fannie Lou uh, May um, High School in the Bronx, which is pretty much all African-American, and an SAR Yeshiva from Riverdale. And what was so amazing about it is that these two schools have found each other. They've already played one scrimmage against one another earlier in the basketball season. But on Sunday, we mixed up the teams and we had these young men play uh, with each other on mixed teams and then have kind of a debrief uh, together over some kosher pizza and really talk about what's going on in the world today. And as I said to these young men, they're showing us how to live. And I'm just really, really fired up. It was, it was a total kid of Shashem. And I just wanted to give a shout out to these two young groups, groups of young men and their coaches, Rafi and Mark, uh, and to say thank you for all the great work for the NBA and the NBPA for, for putting this together. Uh, that is good to hear. That is good to hear. I, I hope some of this type of collaboration dialogue, you know, starts permeating among the players themselves and, and, you know, other leagues. And I mean, we've all sort of been watching, you know, stuff like Kyrie Irving and stuff like that and sort of been like, Oh, what's going on here. And this is the kind of, I think having people to people type conversations, experiences that can start helping in both communities and, and bring people together and hopefully start pushing back and, and helping people in, in those communities push back when they hear a Kyrie Irving speak up and say, yeah, this is, this is wrong, man. This is anti-Semitism. You can't do this. And from strength to strength, Rich, from strength to strength. All right, Rich, what else Speaking we have on the Speaking of anti-Semitism here? that right. just won't go away. Right. Um, <laughs> Morningstar, you've heard me talk about it. Jewish Insider had uh, a big exclusive in the past week on this as well. Encourage you all to to take a look. I had an op-ed in the New York Post uh, last week on this. Basically, here's the deal. Morningstar, for those who have not listened to the podcast and not been paying attention, is one of those large financial research firms. You know Morningstar from your 529 accounts and your mutual fund five-star ratings. They got into the ESG game, that's environment, social governance ratings, just like a bunch of other financial research firms over the last few years. Only Morningstar at the cutting edge of how to infuse BDS into its ESG ratings. We're not here to have a debate on ESG. I know a lot of people who are very supportive of ESG. I know a lot of people are very critical of ESG. I think everyone that I've talked to combined believes that what Morningstar is doing by trying to hurt Israeli companies or companies doing business in Israel 
using the core assumptions of the BDS movement. No different than Ben and Jerry's boycott. No different. Just applying it in an ESG ratings realm of, hey, don't invest in this company because. Or here's a controversy attached to this company to denigrate them and hopefully deter investment in this company because of the same things that led to Ben and Jerry's boycott uh, of its Israeli licensee. On October 31st, Morningstar had made a bunch of commitments to Jewish organizations saying, hey, we're going to remove all these biased assumptions You know, with, with everybody believing ratings were going to change. Came to the end of the year, they've revised all their ratings, and guess what? They still have all of their core BDS assumptions intact. If you are an Israeli bank, you're being targeted by Morningstar's ESG rating with a s- significant controversy, merely because you provide services throughout Israel including in the territories that are disputed. So Rich, East Rich, Jerusalem included. Qu- question. So did anything yeah. did anything change? They did, uh, as they promised, remove references to the UN Human Rights Council, which, of course, at its core is sort of the uh, underlying source of information that says this is occupied territory. This is a human rights abuse, right? We know the Human Rights Council, the biased Human Rights Council has sort of uh, – put the pox on Israel as the occupier, as the evildoer uh, in East Jerusalem or the West Bank or even the Golan Heights. So they removed all those references. And lo and behold, it turns out Morningstar didn't need the Human Rights Council because now all these ratings are based on the BDS campaign itself and their NGOs, Who Profits and Dan Watch and the Human, and Human Rights Watch, which we know is already called Israel an apartheid state. So they say, oh, we don't need the UN. We'll just use the BDS campaign itself. Because they say Israel's an apartheid state. They say these are all human rights abusing companies. By the way, two of them, I mean, so egregious. Yes, it's egregious that you target all Israeli banks, all Israeli cell phone companies, telecoms, because they merely provide services, basic services to all people, including Jews who live in East Jerusalem or the West Bank or the Golan Heights. That somehow merits a controversy in the ratings. The two most egregious, though, Motorola Solutions, and Elbit systems are on watch lists, on formal do not invest lists, because they dare to provide services that, get this, help Israel defend against terrorism. Communication services, surveillance services, defense technology, that you know was meant to stop terrorist attacks, stop suicide bombers. And if anything, after seven people, eight people are killed coming out of Friday night services, by terrorists, and you should know that U.S. companies, Israeli companies that provide services and technology to try to help stop terrorists from killing innocent civilians coming out of synagogue, they're being punished for providing those services. They're being blacklisted, telling investors don't invest in them by Morningstar. That's outrageous. It is outrageous, and it's time for anybody who's an investor, anybody who knows somebody in a state official who has a state anti-BDS law, anybody in Congress, start speaking out. You could be pro-ESG, anti-ESG. This is outrageous. This has nothing to do with ESG. That's just anti-Semitism. It's not. It's not. Right? This is just somebody decided, oh, this is a good idea. Let, right. let's, let's use ESG as a cover for, for right. our BDS stuff. And I get for the, it. This for is the a record, very politicized I'm, I'm, issue. I'm very pro-ESG, but I think that this is just... Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think I could say the words on the uh, on the pod. 
uh, about what I think this is. All and, right. and there's a lot of people who are like, you know, let's have dialogue with the company. Let's have dialogue. Let's let's not let's not criticize the company publicly. It's like, yeah, we should just have dialogue with Unilever. Yeah, Ben and Jerry's. We, you know, dialogue with Ben and Jerry's would have really solved the boycott. I'm sure. Come on, people. You know, this this is this is this is outrageous stuff. And you know, a company. It, it, we we know a company learns from its bottom line. And if you want to engage in a boycott of Israel, there's more than 30 states around the country that have already said, well, then we don't want to have business with you. We don't want to invest in you. It's time for those laws to, to come online. And and I think what what uh, what Morningstar is peddling here is Bubba which brings us oh. which brings us to our reader mailbag. You see what I did there, oh, Rich? That was, that oh. was a great segue. Oh, smart. I didn't see. I didn't think about that one. All right. So, so tell, tell us what so, you learned, Rich. Yeah. So those who saw uh, the write-up uh, on last week's pod and those who listened to last week's pod with Jacob Nagel, the former acting national security advisor for Prime Minister Netanyahu, heard his favorite Yiddish word was Bubba Meister, and it was written up as Bubba Meister. Now, if you look in Urban Dictionary, there actually is a reference to a Bubba Meister, but Reader Mailbag this week actually contained one note that did correctly point out that typically you would think of that word as Bubba Misa in its correct uh, Yiddish context. Uh, this is basically loosely translated as an old wives' tale, a, a Misa uh, tale. That a, that a Bubby would do. A, uh, right, a Bubba's so, Misa. Bobby, Bobby Bernstein, mom, if you're listening, please let me know <laughs> once you uh, once you listen to this week's pod what your take on how Bubba Misa is actually spelled. I, I, podcast podcast at jewishinsider.com if you feel very strongly on Bubba Misa or Bubba Meister or maybe have a different I mean uh, I, I always learned it as Bubba Meister with like an A at the end but that was probably like the New Yorkified I was going to say that sounds very Brooklyn well yes yes okay yeah. uh, alright let's get to our guest Lee Moser uh, star of the the VC the Israeli VC scene former chief of staff to the US amb- to the Israeli ambassador to the United States Michael Oren uh, good friend of mine new good friend of rich after today we hope um, old 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 acquaintance old, old, old acquaintance, I, 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 old acquaintance. I, we, we dealt with uh, back in Senator Kirk's office uh, we were we were on Capitol Hill when ambassador Oren was there I had many a good meeting or as they say longtime listener first time caller exactly. um, all right exactly. Lee Moser welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, so Lee, venture capital is the most overused term in all of the startup world. Can you give us the basics for our listeners and particularly for Rich, because he doesn't know a lot about this and no, I'm just kidding, Rich. Uh, but for our, for our listeners, could you tell us like what venture capital is and why it's important? Sure. So we all know what high tech is or a startup is, right? A yes, company yes. that develop a technology that potentially can be huge and uh, change the world in many aspects. And, and we, we use it in our in our life every day. Venture capital basically are the financial groups or financial people that are looking uh, for those startups or those tech companies in various stages and fund them. So basically what we do is we buy equity, we buy shares when we invest. And we hope to create a very successful portfolio that will grow along the years. And we will make money for our investors and our investor will make money for our investments. Uh, and the companies will be able to have money to fund their growth. 
Give us a little bit of a picture of the Israeli VC scene as it is today. Compare it to your experiences with the American VC scene, European, others. What makes it unique culturally? Who's in the ecosystem today? What are you looking at? So there are many VCs in Israel, uh, more than 400. Uh, just to remind you, it's an 8 million uh, place population. Um, basically, we have two different types of VC. We have the local and we have the international. And then we have different type of stages, for example. We are a very early stage VC. We invest first money into the company when there is an idea, a little bit of traction and presentation. But our later stage VCs, we already invest in a company when they have tens of millions of dollars. So the risk is lower um, when investing later, but also the reward is lower. So high risk, high reward. Different in Israel, I think, in a few aspects. First of all, the culture um, of the entrepreneurs that are in Israel. We all talking about Israelis being uh, very, very creative and also gain a lot of um, experience from the army, mainly from the intelligence units. Um, so this is one thing. And then two, the culture in Israel is very pro-technology, pro-startups. So it's the highest per capita in the world for the numbers of startups and the numbers of people. Laughing on that, walking on Rothschild Street, every second person is a CEO. So this is Israel. And I think uh, today, if you compare it to the US or to Europe, um, comparison to the US, kind of valuation-wise, Israel is still on the lower side. So very attractive for investors to invest in an Israeli company because they can buy more shares when it's a lower valuation in the same amount of money. Um, and also Israeli companies are always looking at the U.S. market as the potential market for the growth and for the sales. So the technology is developed in Israel, but kind of when an Israeli entrepreneur want to grow, they will look at the U.S. market. They want to go to the U.S. market. They want to get American investors and they want to sell to Americans. Where in the American markets, I don't think this is the case. They're not looking for, to sell to Israelis, right? It's a very small country. Uh, so this is the main differentiators. And Europe, listen, um, it's still behind. Um, not all of Europe. There are places that has great startups, um, but the culture is a little bit different uh, of the supportive, the environment, the business environment, the government, the incentives. Um, they're trying and, and some places are, are grow tremendously, of course, like London, for example. Um, Munich is strong, other places in East Europe, but it's, it's still not yet where the U.S. or Israel or China. You know, we think about Israel, it's called the startup nation by many, um, but that wasn't always the case, but it just seems like it was always Bashir. It was always meant to be. Um, because of the way, you know, the, the relative youngness of, of the country of Israel and, and all the other things that sort of are startups without being startups. I'm thinking of reclaiming the desert, right? And, and the water desalinization and a military industry that had to really be, uh, self-sourced, obviously with help from the United States. Um, you talked a little bit about it. What do you think about Israeli culture? As somebody who spent time in the United States uh, and 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 the embassy, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. But what do you think, uh, like culturally, really just makes Israelis uh, uniquely suited for this field of endeavor? I'm going to say something that you probably, I don't know if never, but didn't heard here before, is that we have nothing to lose 
Okay, everyone talking about the Israeli brain and the Israeli chutzpah and how we're brave and if, you know, we can, we can get any meeting and if somebody says no, we'll get from like the back, you know, door. Uh, but I think, you know, growing up in Israel and, and being an Israeli, um, when you're looking at the corporate culture or when you're looking at where you can grow personally, financially, um, one of the only things is actually to start your own startup and grow a company um, with no glass ceiling because this is a very small place um, and the pyramid is, is tight at the end. So if you want to be successful and you want to have personal growth and financial growth, I think one of the only ways today in Israel is to be a part of this ecosystem and to start your own company. This is not an easy journey, right? Like 95% are failing. But the 5% that are not failing, and I think now it's a little bit more than 5% because the ecosystem is more mature, um, are doing the magic. They're growing the Israeli economy at a whole. They're bringing um, you know, different stories and success story back into the Israelis and to the ecosystem. And it's growing every year more and more. So I think this is a bet. Like as Israeli, we live on a day-by-day -day ride that the security situation is not always balanced um, and there is a lot of open issues that we're dealing with it every day for decades. And I think uh, if somebody want to grow, this is uh, one of the best ways in Israel. I'm struck by the number of VCs you mentioned at the top compared to the population, compared to the, to the size of the ecosystem. I'm wondering... Is it saturated at this point? Is there full saturation? Like, can can there be a four hundred and thirtieth VC this year? Like, like, is there just like this is how much money is available now? This is how many VCs are there, and like we 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 cover the full ecosystem, or is there always sort of like room where this niche is not really being focused on this stage of investment for this market to grow into for this kind of company? Like, is there still room in this in this in this VC market, or or is it like, hey, we're we're already elbowing each other, like in the back corner of Aroma? Um, <laughs> yes, it's exactly. kind of like how I imagine, right? Like you're set up like in the in the back of Aroma, um, like crazy. You're like deal flow fight. over here, deal flow over here. Ruven, <laughs> Ruven, deal flow. Exactly. No, it's it's a fist fight. Um, I think it's a very saturated market, and this is why. VCs or new VCs are trying to define the value add chain, right? If 10 years ago, two partners with a nice track record could probably get really good deal flows and deals, today, you know, the entrepreneurs are the ones that are shopping. They are the ones that are choosing the money. There is enough money for everyone. So how you as a VC can uh, differentiate yourself and basically you need to pitch them in many ways. Um, but also it's really depend on the timing. If a year ago, that would my answers. Yes, it's a fist fight. It's very hard. Uh, and by the way, this is how we build and as a studio company, we build companies, we help them grow, right? Um, this time I can tell you that a lot of American VCs and a lot of international VCs are sitting on the fence. So for a local VCs, there are a lot of companies right now looking for founder fundings. Um, so it's an easier market than it was a year and a half ago. 
in one year, in two years, it will change and then more money will flow in again. So it really depends on the overall um, macro economy uh, situation of the world. And now it's a good time to be an Israeli VC, like to be connected to, to the founders and know exactly where to find them and, and who are the best ones. So, so Lee, tell us how you guys are different. Like, how are you different from all, from all other VCs? And then we want to ask you some questions about your time in Washington, which is how you and I know each other. And uh, right. I'm not even going to say how many years ago we met because that will make us both really old. Um, but tell, tell, <laughs> tell us you. how you guys are different first before we, before we, uh, before we go down that rabbit hole. Uh, sure. So, so basically, um, when we formed and we really, as I mentioned, wanted to define the, the value add for the companies. Now, everyone says that they have value add and everyone has value add from what they build or what they did in their life or the investors that they know. Uh, but when it comes to really helping build a company, it has to be tangible. Uh, and this is where we put our differentiator. So basically we decided as, as, um, founding partners to invest our management fees in a team that mirror what a startup needs. So we have in-house, a CTO, a product leader, um, a CFO, a specialized on SaaS, um, person that does business development for the companies. Um, and the way that we present ourselves is almost as co-founder with the companies that we're investing in. Um, but it's not only Roy, my partner, and myself. It's us and a team. And for an early stage VC um, that managed $70 million, which is a nice amount, but it's still a small VC, um, it's very unusual to have such a large team. So this is where we differentiate ourselves. And Lee, tell us about how you think the Abraham Accords, because I'm going to say the only nice thing I will ever say about Donald Trump uh, <laughs> is is getting that deal done. How has that affected the VC and the startup scene in Israel uh, for, for good or for bad? It took time. Um, there was a lot of excitement and hype at the beginning, mainly from Israelis that say, oh, okay, there is now um, Emirati money and will go and will raise because Israel is a startup nation. It will be easy to done. And I think what a lot of them learn is that it takes time. It's not enough just to have it official by the government, although it's, I think it's amazing and, and, and very, very helpful. But it takes time to build a relationship and actually to build the trust between the two nations, or not two or three, or hopefully four soon, um, to have... Uh, investment money flow into the Israeli industry, but and also opposite. So from uh, what I learned, for example, it's very important for our partners um, in the Avram Accords that we will be the first one that will invest, invest our time, invest in Emirati companies, open shops um, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And once we do that, then they are open and welcome also to do the exchange. Uh, so it will still take time, but I think and I hope if everything will keep on growing positively on that aspect, uh, that will be a paradigm change uh, in the Israeli economy in about, I would say, three to four years. And obviously, Saudi Arabia is something the prime minister is talking about a lot. We've been talking about it for a couple of years. Maybe we'll see something. Maybe we won't. Maybe it's something 
in the trade tech sector first uh, is what is sort of what I've suggested. And I think others are thinking of if this Neom city near the Red Sea is really going to come online and the Red Sea tourist destination will come online. Maybe that's the first access point for Israeli Saudi business relations and visas and co-investment and things like that. Is the VC scene talking about it in Israel? Is it actually a, a topic conversation? And do you see potential in that market for Israeli firms? Definitely. Uh, and not just that, we're talking to Saudis. Like Saudis and Israelis are talking all the time. And there are investment made. Sometimes it will be by a foreign arm of a Saudi or by a you know a foreign arm of an Israeli. But I must say that like in um, different places, different countries that are now part of the Abram Accord, their initial relationship quite deep financially on the tech side that happened before the agreement. So it might not be as large as it in the Saudi aspect, but it is happening right now. And this is the base, I think, the economy structure and the economy ties are the best for the base uh, for the official relationship in the future. So I definitely see it happen. Um, I think it's not only important financially, it's also important geopolitically. So I really hope it will happen. So, so Lee, speaking of geopolitics, a lot of people in America who track uh, issues related to investment in Israel have gotten themselves very spun up about Chinese investment in Israel and how that could emerge as a problem in U.S.-Israel relationships. In the U.S.-Israel relationship, do you do you think that you know? Are you guys paying attention to that issue? Do you think that that's a yeah. real thing, or uh, what, what's your make of it? I'll tell you why it's a real thing. If you look at the Chinese investment in Israel, comparing 2015 to now, I think it's dropped by 90 percent on the tech side. So it's, it's dropped 90 percent. Dropped. Hmm. But you, I'll, maybe, I will maybe, be the one to say that's yeah. a good thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> I'll, you don't have to comment, but that, that, maybe, that sounds like a product of good good dialogue between Washington and Jerusalem. Maybe there are uh, um, deals that I'm not aware of, but um, you had a lot of Chinese groups and, and, and that were acquiring and were investing in tech. And I'm talking about the tech sector. Um, also, that there were bigger um, or big private equity um, deals that happened. I think it's a combination geopolitically of the relationship with Israel and the U.S., but I also think it's a, it's what happened in COVID. China closed, right? So some, something happened there. And I think we will probably see more and more uh, Chinese and Chinese-related businesses in Israel happening now when China open up. So I don't know if to say it was because of the U.S.-Israel relationship or U.S.-China relationship or because it was COVID that really... Uh, de-accelerate the involvement of Chinese in Israel. And also, if you look at that, you know, Chinese has a big government contract in Israel still, building the port, building the train in Tel Aviv. Um, I think there are a few more in the pipeline. So it's not totally cut off, but significantly declined. It's such an interesting conversation point. So I, I've obviously been briefed on the security side of all of this in the past and past roles. And um, I have had conversations with government officials on this, but the private sector has always felt to me culturally 
just disconnected from whatever we might believe is sort of the security reality and why Washington is concerned about this. And I find a lot of Israelis either offended, they, they don't want to talk about it. They, you know, listen, we're, we're, we were told economic relations were fine 20 years ago. You know, we just couldn't have military relations. Why are you coming after us now? Why are we being singled out? And it's like, hey, uh, th- there is a lot going on here behind the scenes. And so I'm wondering, do, do we as Americans just, you know, in our own business sector need to have ambassadors, you know, talking about this more? Do we need to provide briefings that are unclassified in some way to, to help business minded people understand why Washington is, is sort of coming into to Israel and saying, hey, we have concerns about this. Or we're not just targeting you. This is this is legitimate. Here's why. Interesting. So the answer is yes. Right. Like uh, like Israelis, Israelis are always pro-American. Israelis, we're, we're, we're the, the young sister or brother, whatever you want to call it. And we look up to the U.S. and we follow culture, traditions. You know, people in Israel are celebrating now Halloween and Christmas because of the American cultures and movies and stuff like that. It's happening. And there are debates on Facebook group of if to do it or not to do it. But we are followed culturally and, and financially by, by the U.S. Um, it really depends because I think also opinion in the U.S. are split on many, many subjects like, you know, Chinese-Israel relationship or the Abram Accords or obviously politic- different political um, accords. So the answer is yes, because I think Israelis should know better who is sending, you know, the people, the business people that are not the government, how to do business with, what is important for them, why is it affecting us? So I do think that we should, you guys should have a voice that is not political. Yeah. So, so Lee, transitioning, I want to ask you a couple questions about uh, your your time in Washington. But do you think anybody in the VC startup world pays attention to BDS in Israel, or is that something that like we only talk about in America with with good reason, by the way, right? And Rich has done a ton of great work. Uh, he is one of the. <clears throat> One of the leading leading writers and and people holding uh, folks to task for being pro BDS, but do people does this resonate in Israel at all? Yes, I think Israelis are aware of the BDS and aware of the movement against BDS. Um, and that Rich hard. is a national and Rich is a national hero in that regard. Sorry, Rich. Uh, many a tree have been planted in my honor. In, in, That's right. Really? I'm going to uh, no, 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 I'm I'm plant kidding. another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, no, but like maybe to like put like a like a finer pin on this for for the VC community. Have you ever like been impacted or seen an impact? Like Norway's pension fund announces we're targeting you know Banklo me or something like. Does it like the numbers to me would suggest fifteen and a half billion dollars last year? Like it it doesn't seem to register in the business sense, right? Like does it? So that's what I wanted to say. I think there are businesses that are affected. Um, but in the VC world, we're always optimistic, right? We're investing in an idea, in a technology, in a person, and we believe it's going to be a $1 billion company. Obviously, with smart tools, right? Um, the numbers are the, the, the facts in the technology sector, I think, that shows that the Israeli, you know, the foreign investment are growing and growing from a year to year, and also the exits and the returns to the investors. And it's hard to find that. 
Um, and as long as we continue to develop this ecosystem and to grow it and to support it and to nourish it, um, it will be hard to um, detract investors from investing in what's happening in Israel. Other sides, like more traditional industries, I think were affected more by the BDS. Not think, no, they were affected more by the BDS. Um, and, you know, if you weren't going to fight for it and be outspoken for it and against it, because, by the way, BDS is not only hurting Israelis, it's hurting Palestinians in the same way because they're working in Israel. Um, so I think we should be very outspoken against BDS and we should be the educator we, I'm saying VCs and investors and financial managers and business community, besides the policy and the political community or the universities, we should be more out there. And I think we're not doing a good job on doing that. Um, should be outspoken and educating people against the BDS and why it's important. So Lee, you were chief of staff at the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., with, when Michael Oren was the ambassador. Uh, sort of a, a unique where time. Where I met you. Where you met me. Where you met me. In front of the White House, yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, and it was an interesting time, right? It was pre-JCPOA, but it was not always uh, an easy time between Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh who I always used to joke would never be, uh, you would never look for both of them on a golf course together. Um, what do you make of the state of the U.S.-Israel relationship today? I think um, what is important to say that we need to work every day to make sure this relationship is maintaining strong and share the values of each other. I think... What I understand today is we can't take in granted um, this relationship that is super, super important for our, um, we talked about geopolitics, so geopolitics, strategic, um, financial, like, like everything. I think the tie is really, really strong and I think we should work on it more. Because like a marriage. It's very, like a marriage. very important. It's, it's important. Like a marriage. Never take anything from granted. I've noted that, um, and, I, and I don't want to force you into into the politics domestically of Israel. We're sort of watching this play out, and it's affecting the conversation in Washington, obviously. Uh, and one of the things that we're seeing is a heavy, maybe loud voice, I should say, from the business community, from the investment community, from what appears to be the VC tech community of Israel. Mm-hmm. being one of the loudest uh, critics of some of the plan reforms. And there's obviously a lot of arguments on both sides. Is this guy is falling? Democracy is over. It's not. Whatever. President Herzog may broker some compromise. Do you do you feel this happening inside, inside the investor community? Is there a reason why that has become so, sort of the, the linchpin of the opposition right now as we see it? Is, is it the politics uh, of of those that dominate the sector, or is there something intrinsically there where where the PR of this, the fear of the unknown, is is triggering something inside the in the business community? So yes, it is a very controversial uh, topic right now in Israel. I think what the VC and tech community um, fight for right now, and it's again, it's not everyone. It's what it's what 
we see from the outside, but it's a pretty big. I would say a lot of VCs, investors, founders were vocal um, for what's going on right now. And in, in, in kind of to sum it up, I think when there is less freedom, there is less growth of the economy. And this is what kind of the main sentence that um, those people are trying to be heard. Like we need the freedom and we need the democracy to be able to grow our economy. And I, I think uh, people in the government, they hear it. And um, from my perspective, um, I think eventually there will be a compromise. Like I don't see it going full um, structuring where the government is taking right now. But again, some places need a change in Israel, but this is a little bit too drastic to a lot of the population and there is not a consensus about it so from what i think i don't know if it's going to be herzog or somebody else from what i hear uh hopefully there will be some kind of negotiation of where this thing will go um and i hope it will be resolved soon because i think we have as a state um many more urgent issues to deal with I gave you the answer. I gave you. I gave you my thoughts. <laughs> if you can read between the lines, I'd like to take a listener through a day in the life of a chief of staff to an yeah. Israeli ambassador to the United States. I don't know what like sort of VC. I don't know if you want to go early stage, mid stage, or late stage of that of that position, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> You know, pick your favorite sort of busiest day in the life and sort of what does that look like? Maybe pick a crisis day, pick, you know, something that's like in your memory. It's like, what does it mean to have that position? Wow, it's almost to run a little government. Like, and, and you know, if you compare it to like different TV shows, it's it's a combination between the VIP and the House of Cards, right? There are like <laughs> terror moments and there are really, really <laughs> funny moments. Um, I think Jared and I shared a few very funny one and also very serious one. Like, it's it's basically dealing with everything um, from the media, especially if there is a conflict. Um, it's working twenty four seven. Prime ministers and presidents and and, and defense minister visits. Um, Policy making behind the scenes, which I think um, Jared and I, we had a few very interesting conversations about a few things um, that we felt we saved the day. Yeah. And I think maybe we did sometimes. Um, maybe I can share a story, but the, and I don't know, Jared, if you remember it, but we, you were a part of it. We were at the Hanukkah party at the White House, and then the fire in the Carmel started. It yep. was the biggest fire in the history of Israel. And you know, uh, tragic, tragic stories. Um, and 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 we needed a we needed a super tanker. That's how I say it in English. Yeah. And we didn't have one, but the U.S. did, and it was not far from us. And we're the Hanukkah party, and the ambassador Michael he's reaching out to Jera, and he's like, "I need to talk to the president because I need this plane." And then right after the speech and toasting, I think Jera, you brought you brought the president and. And we got the plane. And this is this is an optimistic story about us, you know, a small thing that was huge for us uh, that happened and saved lives, uh, really saved lives because it stopped the fire of spreading into a big uh, community that live nearby. So this is an optimistic one. And of course, there are less uh, 
less optimistic one and there are arguments in in you know back rooms in, in the white house yeah even though we got the super tankers i also ate many lamb chops that night so it wasn't yeah. that like my la- <laughs> my lamb chop consumption did not dip for one second but we were able to get the tanker on the way all right rich i think it's time for the lightning round i've uh I I want to know, Lee. What is your? Do you have a favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Um, I think it's German Yiddish, and it's Schlafstunde. It's where you sleep between two to four. And it's funny in Israel. Twenty years ago, everyone took a Schlafstunde between two to four. It was quiet; you couldn't interrupt anyone. With parents. Now it's not existing anymore. But this is my favorite one. Like a like a siesta. Schlaf. Like a schluff, like a schluff, yeah. a schluff. Like okay, Rich, you go. Yes. Uh, favorite Israeli wine. Ooh, that's a good one. I like. By the way, you should know that the the prime minister totally yeah. punted on this question. Would not answer really? it. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can answer it. All right, go for it. Um, I really like Tzoah wine. I think it's one of the best. All right. Lee, what is your favorite Jewish food? It could be Sephardic or Ashkenazi. Oh, um, I love chulnt, chamin, but the Moroccan one. Tell us more about the Moroccan one. What, what does it have in it that, that is different from the Ashkenazi one? First of all, it's separate. You cook it separate, like the rice and the potato and the meat, it's all separate. Where like with the Polish one, the chulnt, it's all together. Like It's like a bubbly soup. Um, oh. And it's, uh, I think so- it's darker. All right. It's, uh, it's in higher quality. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one, Rich. Go, go for it. Uh, favorite place that you would go in Washington D.C. Oh, you got one. You know, I need to think. Um, there was a bar that had like a Latin festival every Monday. I forgot the name. I don't know if it exists anymore. Where was it? Everyone, what neighborhood? It, it was right on off Dupont. Oh. I don't remember the name. Maybe like the nine, the, the nine, the nine thirty club. Maybe was no, that no, it? No, 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 I know no, no, exactly no. no. Was. Yeah, they, had, they had salsa. They had salsa in the basement and stuff like that. Yeah, they had salsa in the basement, and every Monday it was like a fest. Aviv used to go there, and I used to come. And there was uh, like shout the out. That's right. Shout out to Aviv on this podcast. Exactly. Aviv, Aviv. Aviv, Aviv was uh, in English. You would call it the deputy chief of staff. Yeah. Like it was Lee and Aviv, and like you did not cross. If you did not cross Lee, because then Aviv would come with the bat later on and like straighten you out if you didn't get done what Lee needed done. And, Cafe uh, Citron. Citron. Cafe Citron. Oh, good Rich, job. nice pull. Yeah. yeah. I love right. this place. Yeah, uh, good, oh, good we were young once. We yeah, were all yeah. young, we young And by the Lee way, young, yeah. 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 Oh, no. You ask about no. today in the chief of staff. Try to be the youngest one ever in the role and the first woman. <laughs> ah. Yeah. Mm. All right. Talk about shattering the glass ceiling. Exactly. Lee Moser, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This is fantastic. And we hope to see you back again soon. Thank you. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation you can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.